Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, a place in the American Old Northwest. To Canadians, perhaps the Upper Lakes region. And to the hundreds of groups of native people in the area, perhaps simply home. But the Old Northwest, though conceivably a frontier provincial war from the point of view of the War Department, holds the great distinction of seeing the first actions of the War of 1812, and indeed the first decisive attacks in this nation-defining conflict. General William Hull, having sold his plan on the importance of seizing Upper Canada to Washington, was already assembling an army in Ohio by May of 1812, a full month before the Declaration. On July 2nd, the transport ship Cuyahoga, which Hall had hired here at the foot of the rapids, was boarded and captured by the Provincial Marine at the mouth of the Detroit River, the first incident. Then, two weeks later, in another first and devastating blow to the Americans, the bloodless overthrow of strategic Fort Mackinac in the far-flung north. Word traveled slowly in the frontier, and neither Hull nor Lieutenant Porter Hanks, commander at Mackinac, was aware that war had officially opened. And these were the very first battles, if they can indeed be called that, in the War of 1812, and seemingly well-known stories to us. But what about the very last battles of the war? As we've just said, word traveled slowly in the sparse wetlands here, and with the peace ratified in February 1815, the troops at Fort Meigs would not march out through these gates until May of that year. And even later that same month, way out in Missouri Territory, ugly bloodshed was still occurring between bands of Sauk fighting men and the U.S. Army a subject for a soon-coming episode of this program. But there were still more salvos to come, and this host was shocked, shocked, to learn how late in the fighting season they were to come. And this shall be the subject of our adventure today, the final engagement. So prepare to lower your colors and at last stand down. Again, welcome the foot of the rapids. If news traveled slow in the muddy frontier of 1812, it traveled even slower way out to sea. Small squadrons, or even lone vessels, tiny specks in the vast nothingness of the ocean's mighty and tumultuous surface, might be isolated and out of touch with civilization for months, especially in a climate with few friendly ports as the Americans were facing. And it is often the case in warfare that Navy ships may be the last to know of any great news, like peace or surrender. And so it was with our subject today. The final shot of anger in the War of 1812 was a broadside touched off by perhaps a nervous or zealous or distrustful Master Commandant Lewis Warrington 
captain aboard the USS Peacock, slamming iron into the decks of a British East India Company trade vessel, the Nautilus, in the Sunda Straits on the far side of the world. Today, perhaps the busiest shipping lane on earth. The Treaty of Ghent, which ended the War of 1812, would stipulate that any prize taken at sea, anywhere in the world, after 120 days of ratification, would be null and have to be restored by the offending government. That cutoff day would be June 17, 1815, for the Far East. And Captain Warrington would miss even that distant target by a considerable sum. In the face of this, it is a bit laughable to hear people chuckle or point out with cheek that the great battle of New Orleans was fought after the war was over. Oh, really? In truth, many factors and outstanding circumstances would stack up on Captain Warrington to make this striking event possible. And Warrington would feel fully justified in his actions that day far away, going as far to say, quote, I am aware that I may be blamed for ceasing hostilities without more authoritative evidence the peace had been concluded, unquote, as we discover. The winter of 1814 to 1815 saw the American government preparing for the fighting season to renew and going on the offensive, land and sea. A small fleet of five ships had gathered in New York Harbor, hoping the brutal northeastern winter weather might provide just enough of a black cloak to aid in slipping past the ensnaring British blockade and make a rough and blowing run for the open sea. Famed American Navy man, Commodore Stephen Decatur, had received broad orders from the outgoing Secretary of the Navy to take his ship, the President, our subject ship, the Peacock, another strong sloop, the Hornet, and two quick supply ships, the Macedonian and the Tom Bolin, and sail to the Indian Ocean there disrupt British economy by attacking the Cantonese trade. In all events of the enemy's escape, whether the senior officer shall have any information as to their destination or not, he is to use every possible exertion to communicate as widely and publicly as he can, the fact of the enemy being at sea. Secretary Croker, the Admiralty. Decatur, aboard the President, would attempt to make their escape the night of January 14th, the Macedonian supply ship close behind. Warrington, the Peacock and the Hornet were to remain in port, awaiting their storeship to regain seaworthiness. The President, one of the famous big and powerful American frigates from this early era, would not last long on this final voyage. 
Damaged from a grounding and harried by withering enemy shots, she surrendered at sea the next evening. But the peacock, still in port, would have no knowledge of this, and a full nine days later, the final three ships slipped away from the east coast of North America. Sir, I have no information on which I can rely as to the destination. But always understood, they were intended to accompany the President. And they may possibly proceed to a given rendezvous for meeting her. I have no ships or vessels which I can detach in pursuit, or with information of them. Rear Admiral Henry Houghton, North American Blockade Fleet. This is the first outstanding circumstance by which Warrington would have such a terribly late engagement. Departing on a fresh, long-distance assignment in the last winks of actual wartime. Together with the Hornet and Tom Bolin, they left port on January 23rd, 1815, a full 30 days after the treaty was signed but only 22 days before the news would reach New York from which they left. 15 days after the Battle of New Orleans is when their mission began. Three days out to sea, weather separated the Peacock and Hornet. Plowing south, they would not be reunited until the Peacock came abreast of Tristan da Cunha on March 25th now a month plus a week beyond official ratification. Tristan da Cunha is one of the small Ascension Islands in the mid-South Atlantic. It was designated as the rendezvous spot for this expedition where they separated. Having no knowledge of the capture of the president, they awaited its arrival. And here is the second circumstance that leads to such a late midsummer sea battle. Warrington would wait 20 more days for Decatur before weighing anchor and pushing on with the mission. During this time, the store ship Tom Bolin was detached to South America and our dwindling fleet is down to but two sloops. By late April, 1815, the Peacock and Hornet had passed into the Indian Ocean, where they caught sight of the big 74-gun British ship of the line, the Cornwallis. After a day or so of pursuit, on April 28th, the mighty Cornwallis came about to swat at the Yankee annoyance. This caused our ships to scatter separate directions in flight. Warrington and the Peacock would not see the Hornet again. Our fleet, with high hopes for a renewed offensive, shaved down to a single ship, alone and hunting. 119 feet of timber and rope on the indescribably huge surface of the southern earth. And this leads to what we might consider the third outstanding circumstance stacked against the peacock. Lost time invariably made the crew hungry for action, anxious to at last engage an enemy, take prizes. 
It would make them leery of perhaps only rumors of peace, altogether leaning towards disbelief in the quest for actual combat. In the words of midshipman William Rogers aboard the Peacock, quote, I think U.S. ratification never will nor ever ought to be the case. If such is the case, we are the last ship east of the Cape, and so we'll make most our time." Unquote. By mid-May, only the Peacock and Hornet remained at sea, sailing under wartime orders. And the Hornet was already heading back to North America. All other U.S. ships had found harbor and the news of peace. Those words from Midshipman Rogers regarding make most our time were the first inklings of knowledge, or at least speculation, that a peace indeed existed. These words came after the Peacock had arrived off the coast of Java on June 8th. The last American ship got right to work, taking three prizes, the Union, the Venus, and the Brio del Mar, British merchant ships. The imprisoned sailors set aboard the Venus and bound for shore, as the other two ships were torched. Some say these prizes carried knowledge that a treaty had been signed, but no certainty on ratification. The Peacock continued her hunt. The final act, the last battle anywhere for the War of 1812 would come weeks later, all the way out to June 30th, 1815, 188 days after the Treaty of Ghent had been concluded and a Christmas shared, a full 133 days after American ratification. That morning, the Peacock arrived five miles off the fort at Angier, flying British colors, a common deceit, a wolf in sheep's clothing. In the afternoon, she was approached by a number of smaller British vessels, including the armed East India Company brig, the Nautilus. From longboats, the Peacock was boarded by a Mr. McGregor, a civilian administrator from Angier, and a Mr. Joseph Bartlett, the sailing master from the quickly approaching Nautilus. These men were apparently quickly ushered below deck Captain Warrington apparently remained on deck, awaiting the approach. It is at this time many claim Mr. McGregor informed the American First Lieutenant and the ship's purser that he had proof the war was over. Captain Warrington would claim such information was not transacted upon him. Suddenly, Warrington doused the disguise and threw up the Yankee Jack, his guns, at the ready. Her commander asked if I knew that there was a peace. I replied in the negative, directing him at the same time to haul down his colors, if that were the case, in token of it, adding that if he did not, I should fire into her. This being refused, one of our forward guns was fired at her, which was immediately returned by a broadside from the brig. Our broadside was discharged and his colors struck after having six Lascars killed and seven or eight wounded. 
as we had not the most distant idea of peace, and this vessel was but a short distance from the fort at Anyer, I considered his assertion, coupled with his arrangements for action, a finesse on his part to amuse us till he could place himself under the protection of the fort. I am aware that I may be blamed for ceasing hostilities without more authoritative evidence that peace had been concluded. But I trust, sir, where our distance from home, with the little chance that we had of receiving such evidence, are taken into consideration, I shall not be thought to have decided prematurely. Captain Lewis Warrington, U.S. Navy. Warrington had asked for surrender. Lieutenant Boyce, in command aboard the Nautilus, seeing it all unnecessary, had refused the dishonor. The Peacock fired a solo shot from her bow gun, wounding Boyce in the hip with grape shot. The Nautilus returned with what broadside she could muster. The Peacock, absorbing the iron, now opened with a full broadside, creating great damage and causing 13 casualties aboard the Asian merchant, including further destruction to Boyce, now with a severed leg. The war was over. The smoke slowly clearing in the humidity of Indonesia. Lieutenant Boyce quickly rode to shore to have proper attention paid his grievous wounds. Here he spent months in recovery before his official report. I deemed it my duty, although I must confess that as with no small degree of reluctance, to strike the British colors to the American. Her first lieutenant about dusk took possession of us. She proved to be the U.S. Sloop of War Peacock, carrying 32-pound carronades and two long 18-pounders. Her crew is said to consist of 220 men. I beg leave to subjoin a list of killed and wounded on board the Honorable Company's cruiser, and having to lament the loss of so many, I regret that a fairer opportunity for their exertions was not afforded them, and myself, with a vessel of more equal force. The damage the Nautilus received in the action was considerable both to her hull and rigging. Four thirty-two pounds shot were found lodged, have been picked out of her. One was under the counter, very nearly level with the water. A great number of small arms and gunner stores were thrown overboard by the Americans on their taking possession to clear the deck. The packets, I'm happy to say, remained on board without being touched, but almost everything below was ransacked. Lieutenant Charles Boyce, Captain British East India Company Nautilus. Captain Boyce, as we've said, was released to shore to have his wound attended and his leg amputated. Mr. McGregor was also dispatched to bring proof of the peace, which he had not done previously, believing he was boarding a British ship owing to Warrington's deception. The Peacock must have had a change in ardor through the night, because before McGregor returned the following afternoon, Warrington was already restoring his prisoners to the Nautilus and had drafted a letter to the civilian administrator saying, Quote, I feel myself bound to desist from hostilities and regret that my reasonable demand had not been complied with by the commander of the Nautilus brig yesterday afternoon, unquote. 
Warrington's reasonable demand had been the order to lower your colors. On July 4th, the Nautilus made sail and limped for the capital of the Dutch East Indies. And July 5th, the Peacock began the lazy voyage home. They would not make it back until October 30th, 1815. Controversy erupted almost immediately. Letters flew between high ranks of the British East India Company and officers of the brig. Testimony was given. The Admiralty would convene a hearing. James Madison and James Monroe would be shamed, though they would claim complete ignorance. Warrington would not write the Secretary of the Navy for four days after making fast in the United States that fall. A board of inquiry would be held nearly a year later, and though Warrington himself did not testify, he would be exonerated. And so ended the War of 1812, the final engagement. So much later than New Orleans, and perhaps as confused as the reasons for the war's beginning. The grime of black powder at last washed away in the warm, salty waters of the Javan Sea. Next time, we return to the foot of the rapids and the army of the Northwest. My thanks to Martin Land and True Science for their vocal work, and we thank you. We appreciate you. We welcome you. Fair winds.